0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Breaking the Impasse, Electoral Politics, Mass Action, and the New Socialist Movement in the United States by Kim Moody. In his latest book, veteran socialist writer Kim Moody provides a masterful analysis of the political impasse which has shaped the rise of a new socialist movement in the U.S. Sharp inequality, state violence, climate catastrophe, and a globally ascendant right proceed apace while the U.S. political arena remains defined and dominated by two capitalist political parties. Moody situates the historic electoral campaigns of Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez along with the growth of organizations like DSA in this context and incisively assesses the revived movement's focus on electoral strategies, ultimately arguing for an alternative orientation based in a politics of mass action, anti-racism, and independent working class organizing. Breaking the Impasse by Kim Moody Out now from Haymarket Books and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and 25 pounds, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island, but today's episode was not recorded here. I had a really wonderful and busy time at last week's Socialism 2022 conference in Chicago, where roughly 1,400 socialists gathered for conversations on every subject imaginable. This episode is my live and quite lively interview with Femi Taiwo, Robin D.G. Kelly, and Ruth Wilson Gilmore, which took place this past Sunday. It was really something to have three of my favorite radical intellectuals, all of whom I've interviewed here on the show before, together for one big conversation. It was also really incredibly nice to meet so many listeners in Chicago and to discuss the inspiring organizing work you're all doing all over the place. Please keep it up. Your organizing work And the fact that somehow this podcast, you find it useful, is what makes me doing this feel so gratifying. Okay, before we get rolling, this podcast is supported by publishers like Haymarket, which did such a wonderful job organizing the Socialism 2022 conference. But above all else, first and foremost, this podcast is made possible by you, our listeners, who support us at patreon.com slash the dig. Above all else, you should support The Dig because that's our unusual business model. Instead of paywalling half our episodes to coerce you into contributing, I just ask you, like I'm doing right now, to voluntarily donate. That way, we can put out all of our episodes free for everyone to listen to regardless of your ability to contribute. But that only works because those of you who can afford to contribute do so. If you can afford $5 or more a month, please make that contribution now. In fact, in exchange for a contribution of any amount at all, we will send you our excellent weekly newsletter by email. If you haven't read our newsletter and don't yet know that it is really very excellent, check them out at thedigradio.com. But that's not all. If you contribute $10 or more a month, we will send you a book or books in the mail, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Please take a quick moment to contribute now. Okay, here's Femi Taiwo, Robin D.G. Kelly, and Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Femi Taiwo is professor of philosophy at Georgetown University, where his work focuses on social political philosophy with an emphasis on anti-colonial thought and the black radical tradition. He's the author of Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics, and Everything Else, and Reconsidering Reparations. Robin D.G. Kelly is a professor of history at UCLA and the author of numerous articles and books, including Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great Depression, and Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination. Ruth Wilson Gilmore organizes with people around the planet, teaches at the City University of New York Graduate Center, and is the author of Abolition Geography, Golden Gulag, and, forthcoming, Change Everything. Femi Tyrell, Robin Kelly, and Ruth Wilson-Gilmore, welcome back to The day. What I've experienced recently as an organizer in Rhode Island and what I hear from organizers elsewhere is that the left is demobilized right now because we're demoralized. And of course, like the situation is uneven. There's a real sense of fight back in the workplace. And But the theme of demoralization can really feel like it carries the day sometimes, especially perhaps on the internet. The three of you have been through a number of periods of ebb and flow on the left, including, I imagine, some really lengthy ebbs. Robin, let's start with you. How, how have you seen the left manage periods of reaction or demobilization in the past, and what, what have you seen organizers get right and wrong?
1: Let me begin with the question of the left, because I'm not, I'm not sure what the left is. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm old enough to, to not remember ever there being a single left. <laughs> in fact, I know there's a lot of fights, uh, within this thing we call the left. But I, I don't know, you know, I don't know, because, of course, the question assumes that there's a singular left. It also assumes that there is a kind of demobilization and demoralization. And let me kind of sort of push back a little bit on that. Please. One, um, it depends on where you are. If you're in, in Florida, you think things are terrible, but then you got this kid who had connections with the Dream Defenders, uh, you know, uh, uh, Maxwell uh, Frost who's running for office and looks like he may win. Now, I'm not saying that running for office is, is, is like the greatest victory on the planet, but in terms of what's being mobilized in a place like that, or the fact that um, the folks who organize the debt collective, they may not be, no, no one's thrilled with the, the final outcome, but this is a victory. Um, and and the, the folks with the debt collective have been doing this for a long time. I mean, even before Occupy. So in many ways, the ebb and flow is part of the flow of struggle when you don't have power. So I just would expect that. you know, And then a couple other things. When we think about the ebb and flow, I wonder how much of that's about visibility. 2020 blew up, but then all the things that were not, well, actually, they were pretty visible, to be honest. All the movement that preceded that, all the organizing that preceded that, Um, was there, you know, and it wasn't that it blew up and then it got blown back there. And in fact, what we're seeing right now is a reaction on the part of the right against those movements because they're not winning. You know, not to say this is about winning, but think about what are they waging war on? They're waging war on queers, communists, women, and wokeness. Now, what's wokeness? (laughs) Right? Wokeness, that's that's a racially coded term that refers specifically to those movements. So I'm not saying, in fact, that you're all here, packed in here. Socialism conferences, a whole lot of young people I've never seen in my life. You know? (laughs) So I I actually think there might be some demoralization, there might be some demobilization, but there's a lot of struggle and a lot of mobilization. Um, And the last thing I just say about about this just has to do with sort of the historical context. If we end up talking more about uh, other periods of time, I think about the 1930s uh, and how you know, we think of, we get nostalgic about the 30s, like we get nostalgic about the 60s. And we say the 30s was such a great period of the left mobilizing the Communist Party. And, and that, that is true. But what do we actually get? Uh, we got the New Deal, which is celebrated as somehow a great victory. But what the New Deal did was exactly what Ruthie said last night. It was capitalism using capitalism to save capitalism, um, and it was a great victory for capital uh, during the Great Depression. Incomes, income distribution went up to the highest realm. Uh, it didn't go down um, during the Great Depression. They they save agricultural capital by destroying crops. You know, I mean. They, they shored up the banks. Um, they even created a labor, labor regime, which is partly a product of struggle. I'm not going to deny that. But the labor regime that was produced made it more possible for capital to reproduce itself. Um, and I'm not saying that there were no, no victories. There were. But what I'm saying is that sometimes we have to see struggle dialectically as opposed to like, highs and lows. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes what looks like the high is actually in defeat. What looks like the low is movements emerging. Mm-hmm. That's my answer I guess. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rufy, yeah. Let me let me pick up where Robin left off and I'm thinking of a couple of other periods. Um, Robin is the historian at the table, but I have um, had to, as all of us have had to do, study history in order to figure out what to do today. So one example of um, you know, a huge flowering of well-reported um, activity was the so-called Arab Spring, which is to say the uprisings in North Africa and West Asia in 2010, 2011. And of course, those uprisings, which spanned a number of different countries, uh, a number of different regimes, a number of different local and regional issues, um, were the result of not only spontaneous eruptions in the streets and the squares, but also years and years and years and years of organizing on the part of agricultural workers, labor unions, anti-militarism people, um, anti-patriarchy Uh, organizing and so on and so forth. So all of those things came together at that time and erupted. Similarly, um, and this is a little more abstract, but something I've been noodling on quite a bit lately, is the, um, the look of global, and I mean global, foreign direct investment in the 20th century and how if we look at the at the arc of rise in foreign direct investment and then crashes, there's this period between the mid-1950s and the late 1960s that we sometimes call the Great Compression. And it's the time when there was the least volatility. It's also the time here in the United States when income inequality was at its lowest, which doesn't mean there weren't poor people, but um, the range was at its lowest. And I attribute that great compression on a global and more local scale to the kinds of anti-colonial, anti-racist, pro-socialist and pro-communist organizing that was happening all over the world, right? So there are you know, a lots, lots of themes and indications that we can use to try to give ourselves some guidance for the future in thinking about the sorts of internationalism that made certain things possible, the ways in which elite capture takes um, radical activity and pacifies it and domesticates it and so forth.
0: Femi.
3: I don't have too much to add, um, but I will say one thing. Um, I think if you were out there, in summer 2020 and you face down the tear gas and you face down the cops right and you saw a police station burning i think you know it would be easy to think we're storming the bastille right now like right. tomorrow right. things right. are going to get real you know and and not at all to Doc what did happen, but obviously we we one thing that we do know for sure is that that wasn 't you know the day after wasn 't the dissolution of this global empire or of the system of racial capital right it was just another movement, another moment in struggle um, and I think one of the things that we that it makes sense to take away from this historical perspective, from this dialectical perspective on history, is that, you know, how we respond to these moments isn't necessarily going to be something that we can understand until years later, right? Um, I understand the frustration of somebody who thought that there were, you know, mass movement in the streets was going to turn into mass membership in large organizations and sustained mass politics. Unfortunately, that isn't what happened, but at the same time, a thing that we can remember and a thing that we will start to understand and build the kind of movement-level memory of is that these exciting moments aren't the end of the story, right? They might be, as Robin was saying before, they might be, you know, just another step on the road to wherever it is that we're going. Yeah,
0: I I want to follow up on on just that. I think today we're very much witnessing in many ways the afterlives of like two big movements of 2020. First, the Bernie campaign, and then the summer of mass George Floyd Mm -hmm. uprising in the streets. In both movements, narrowly, in a a more narrowly conceived way, failed at achieving their most straightforward objectives. Like police by and large were not defunded and Bernie was not elected president. But I think, for example, in the current resurgence of labor militancy, especially among young workers at Amazon, Starbucks, Trader Joe's, those workers, at least the leaders, but I would say probably most, were in the streets that summer and were voting for Bernie or organizing for Bernie in the primary. So how do you all read that history, the legacy of those pivotal electoral and then street movements of what they've combined to create. And maybe more broadly, how should we evaluate the successes and limits of social movements? Is it enough to talk about policy wins? The emergence of new organizations seems like one key benchmark. But, but how do we assess these harder to grasp shifts in attitudes, consciousness, subjectivity that, that movements like those of 2020 can produce?
2: I have lots of thoughts about this, and none of it's about Bernie. Um, but I'll talk about what I think about, and you guys can talk about Bernie if you want to. Um, <laughs> and I got nothing against Bernie; he's great, you know. But, but, um, but the—I want to talk about the resurgence of labor militancy and labor organizing, and I think it's a key thing, and it gives me more hope than almost anything. Um, and it's. And it's because of the obvious thing that many of us forget in the day-to-day of struggle, and that is when you're doing something with somebody else, it's better, right? That's what we learned from Mariam Kaba, right? Anything worth doing, you do with somebody else. It's better. And labor unions, whether they're already existing unions or new formations that use the kind of structures of such institutions, make uh, a necessary concentration of energy and enthusiasm. And the kind of thing that people have managed to achieve using that work, this is something that Robin's written about brilliantly, is a sort of solidarity and trajectory energy energetic trajectory toward the future Mm -hmm. that makes possible doing more things. This is why I was saying last night that abolition is that. It doesn't matter if anybody in the Amazon Union thinks of themselves as abolitionists. That is part of what abolition requires in order to change everything. Um, It's one example of many. I also want to say one other thing, which is that as far as I can tell over my very long life, there are two ways to work with people in organizations. Mm-hmm. You can innovate them, which some people do, or you can infiltrate what is. Mm-hmm. And infiltration is a really good thing because a lot of the you know, resources are there and available. And by going through an inter- in- internal democratic process, it's possible to seize resources. And that's the point, isn't it? In order to change the world. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Robin, Femi
2: I'll be
1: even briefer um, because I think Ruthie said everything needs to be said um, one thing I would add to that and, and it's interesting you know, sitting next to Ruthie we we're, were just talking you know, before we actually had this conversation about, about the language of abolition and how even if you don't measure and again, I have a sole issue with success and how you measure. And I think it's, I think it's a useful way of, of thinking, of, of trying to come up with the measure. But I do think that, you know, people say abolition in a way that they were not saying it 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, that, so what we're looking at to sort of think about Gramsci is a kind of, this is like a war of position, right? Mm-hmm. This is a way of, of, of sort of challenging the hegemony of what is natural. There was a time in my lifetime when (laughs) there was a struggle to try to improve the conditions of prisoners. I mean, that was it. That's where it ended. And the idea that you basically abolish prisons, abolish police, I'm not saying it's new, new, new. But it certainly has become more pervasive. And that's all the organizing work. But it's not just organizing work in the streets. It's also the intellectual work. Mm -hmm. It's also the, you know, all that's tied together. So I think what we're witnessing is a shift in perspective, which, you know, even if it doesn't manifest itself in a concrete policy shift at the moment, that shift in perspective is the most dangerous thing you have, Mm -hmm. you know, because there will be people Organizers, labor organizers who will use the term abolitionists. And and ironically, um, surge, I won't say resurgence, but the surge of abolition, the language of abolition has actually, I think, lent itself to the surge or the resurgence of socialism Mm -hmm. as a concept. Femi.
3: I think that there are, there are things we can count, right? If we want to figure out how we're doing. And I was thinking about this in response to the first question where you know part of what is maybe demoralizing or demobilizing for some, especially people who are involved, is you know the gap between what we win and what we want is. Um, but I think it takes a long time to win at scale and something we can count in the meantime is just numbers of fighters. Right. At our membership meetings, compared to last year, are there more or fewer people? Um, I was at uh, the eco-socialism panel this morning and they were talking about how, you know, they had three times as many people make phone calls pressuring the New York state government to pass build public renewables as there were people who had been officially on paper organized by that uh, group of people. So I think the number of people participating in struggle, whether or not there's an immediate win that happens today, um, I think that's the kind of indicator that we should look at. And if you look at at least some of the numbers, uh, how many applications there are to the NLRB for new unions, like that tells the story of, of um, flow rather than ebb. Um, and I think that's that's the story.
0: Well, what does it reveal about the, the balance of power in society that these mass mobilizations for all that they have accomplished were so often metabolized by, by liberal forms of identity politics that emphasized representation and recognition above all else? The 2020 movement, without a doubt, had stronger antibodies against that than prior iterations with the clear materialist demand to defund the police that strikes like right at the heart of the cross state, but, but in corporate America and media, in academia and academia, it was all often, too often quickly metabolized as a matter of diversity, representation, whatever. What, Femi, how do anti-racist radical struggles navigate this gargantuan force of American liberalism? And, and what did we learn about that <laughs>
3: over the past <laughs> two years? <laughs> <laughs> uh, how do how do we take on liberalism? Oh boy, yeah. I don't <laughs> Everyone have their notebooks yeah. out. I don't know. I mean, I have to think about what to say on the prescriptive side of here's what we should do. Um, but actually, the thing that it occurs to me to say is to just point out, here's what we have done. Because I, um, for those of you who don't know, my, my day job is a philosopher. <laughs> Let me tell you what they were talking about <laughs> 10 years ago. <laughs> right? Is the hole in the center of a donut, is that an object? <laughs> <laughs> right?
0: Wait, is it? <laughs>
3: <laughs> the abound, you know. <laughs> and now they're talking about, well, you know, should we have epistemic justice? Um, should our syllabi include this or that? And one response to that is to point out the big gulf between that and material, you know, material gains and the reconstruction of the economy around public ownership. And those are things that, of course, the socialists were going to point out. But the other thing that we should point out is that the very move to representation constantly in the face of burning police stations, you know, exactly as Robin said a couple of questions ago, is something that looks from one perspective to be uh, you know, some kind of defeat for us, but I think in the longer view demonstrates the power that we're building. Um, It is a show of weakness on the side of liberalism, that they have nothing to say for themselves other than, here's Herschel Walker. (laughs) 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 And so, you know, I don't have much to say other than, let's keep doing what we've been doing. Exactly,
2: exactly. Ruthie? Yeah, I mean, I... One of the things I have thought about a lot is how um, quickly, and Femi wrote a whole book about this. It's called Liberal Capture. You should all read it. But but how quickly um, something that is um, uh, complicated and powerful and possibly symbolic of liberation can be turned against itself. But we have to think always about the dialectics of everything in order to do anything. But it's very, very quick. And what helps me is to look outside the United States for a second, because the US liberal bubble is an astonishingly mind-numbing thing. <laughs> right? The US liberal bubble in which, you know, the extent of evil is named Donald Trump rather than the entire system right. that right. enabled right. Donald right. Trump to be. Right. Um, and so looking at what a social movement that's been around for, for, for 40 years does, the MST, and the constant evolution and expansion of the work that they do reminds me what we can do here. Um, uh, and in fact, what, it reminds me what we must do here. I was thinking that, if, if you'll allow, perspective is a powerful word. Mm-hmm. But I would like us to think with the word consciousness,
1: mm-hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. And to think about the kinds of consciousness um, that people were and are developing as a result of the uprisings of the 20s and the campaign for Bernie Sanders in 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 2020. uh, 1920. (laughs) He is is old. He he, he wasn't born in 1920. In 2020, the the uprisings and, and all that electoral... Uh, campaigning Mm -hmm. stuff and think about how people's consciousnesses of what is possible have changed right it's not just perspective it's it's open and yet the openness is not itself fixed and this is where having gatherings like this the socialism conference is so important not to fill people's, you know, gaps in people's minds with some content, mm-hmm. but to give us the opportunity to have these conversations and have some debates, so we go back to our day jobs considering the donut or organizing <laughs> the, <laughs> the teachers, you know, with some new, you know, let me quote myself: creative aggression right. in hand. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. Robin. Oh no, no, I, I'm not. <laughs> Continue. All right. <laughs> uh,
0: speaking of, of age, um, we have I think two old millennials on the panel and two boomers.
2: Are you a boomer? Are you Jeanettes?
0: Have, I don't think. I don't I don't think, think so. How old are you? You don't have to say. It. Okay. We have people we have no, people I, a variety of ages up I, here.
1: I, 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 don't, I don't think I'm a I don't think I'm a boomer. I am um, a, a, a I'm a you know early bloomer. Um, <laughs> but no, I was born in 1962, oh, so a G- I'm a member of ARP. <laughs> you. well, we technically, a you're a boomer. Yeah. You're the the last. I'm of the, the last. Boomers,
2: the last, of the, last of the boomers. I was the right. high point of the boomers. <laughs> <laughs> the the, peak, the pinnacle. The pinnacle. I uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, despite my. Uh, you know, relative youth, I'm often the <laughs> oldest person in the room in many organizing meetings at age 39, and by contrast, whenever I check check in on what exists in an anti-war movement, it is like all kind of boomers from the peace movement of the 60s who are have stu- valiantly stuck around. Mm-hmm. What sort of structures do we have in place to transmit knowledge across time? on the left, and, and what political organizations did you all come up in, and did they have strong ties to previous generations of left politics?
1: Um, I guess I'll, I'll start with that one. On, on the first one, what kinds of structures? Who boy, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a very complicated thing. I, I mean, my, my political biography sort of reveals the story about About why sometimes you don't really want to have a direct line, and why it's sometimes a problem, and why sometimes uh, that kind of intergenerational mentorship is important. Um, So for me, you know, I came, you know, my sister was my mentor, Makani Temba. And she, she raised me politically, she continues to raise me. And so I got, I became a communist through her as a member of the Communist Workers' Party. When the Black Radical Congress was formed, here in 1998 uh, with a bunch of people. Some people are here in the room. Um, So it's two different stories. One is with the Communist Workers' Party, it was very intergenerational. And we learned a lot from people who are older comrades. I remember I was part of a study group of all workers, both uh, health workers and workers in San Pedro back when they had actually factories. And it was a lot more industrial work. And I was in a study group reading Mao and and reading Marx, with older activists, many of whom were involved in black power, civil rights, and learned a lot from them and from their example and from their discipline. Um, When I was in college, my professor, uh, Jack Stewart, he says, oh, you know, um, uh, I have a group you can hang out with. It was a a study group for the Peace and Freedom Party. Some of you may have heard of them. But the piece of it was, so I would show up, and I was not only the only black person in the room, but I was the only one under 70. <laughs> and I was 18 years old. And it was like the most amazing thing. On the other hand, we get to the Black Radical Congress, and the other story is when um, uh, around the same time of the Black Radical Congress was the labor teach-ins. Some of you may remember this, in 1995 through uh, where there's a group called Sausage Scholars and, art, and Artists and Writers for Social Justice supporting labor. And they asked, they, they needed a black person, so they brought me in. I, <laughs> I gave a speech at one of their sessions, and I said something about, you know, you can't let all these old people run your organization. You've got to, you've got to take leadership. And Eric Altman had a fit and t- attacked me in the nation for that. Wow. Oh, yeah. He, he, I'll call him on in a second. Please. <laughs> <Faker. laughs> to a faker. Um So then to go back to Black Radical Congress, the same thing. The Black Radical Congress emerges as this powerful organization. And it is, it is, I still have nothing but love for the organization. But I remember they created a youth sort of division, a kind of youth caucus. But the youth caucus is like 30 and younger. And I remember saying, saying, you know what? This should not be a youth caucus. SNCC didn't have a youth caucus. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, you can test. The leadership should be those people who are 16, 17, 18 alongside the others. In other words, sometimes this idea of passing the torch or mentorship can be very powerful. And sometimes it can be a problem because it does... Because there are times when there's intergenerational difference that matters, mm-hmm. where younger people actually have a perspective, a consciousness, that is probably, for whatever limits and faults, maybe more radical than what other people want. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'm not one, I, I don't see a problem um, in terms of the ability of intergenerational Organizing and building. The problem to me is not intergenerational. Even, even um, Ferguson. One of the biggest myths about Ferguson was that it was just like these young people who were saying, "You oh, know, this is not your grandparents' civil rights movement," and all the older people were, uh, were. Out. That's not true. I went to some of those meetings, and there are people across generations in the same room. You know, I mean. So there, there's. It, it exists. It's connected. To me, the problem is not intergenerational. Some of the problem is is the fact that we live in a social media universe where people could hide behind their blogs and have no connection to other people doing things together. Mm -hmm.
0: Of any age. Of any age. Mm
1: -hmm. And to me, that's much more of a challenge than the question of how do you pass this on? Because I feel like we learn stuff all the time from the kind of experimental... Uh, even the missteps and mistakes that people make when they're organizing and struggling. And that, those are the lessons that are so valuable. They're gold, you know? And so we have to always learn, and we can't always be the ones to, to have the knowledge to pass on. Now, I'm not saying this, that we don't have anything useful to, to give, but I'm saying it's much more give and take. And that's what I've always seen in the movement spaces I've been in.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ruthie? Yeah. Well, I was raised in a family of organizers. My dad uh, organized labor unions and then was a community organizer and did a lot of amazing things. And I've you know, written about him a little bit, so you probably all know a little something about my dad if you've read anything I've written. His father was a labor organizer, You know, a long line of organizers who were also what we used to call in the middle of the 20th century race people, right? So we, we worked... Uh, constantly to free ourselves I grew up in the north I grew up in New Haven Connecticut A uh, working class uh, neighborhood in a town you know dominated by two things Yale University and also the Winchester repeating rifle company right so warfare and the intellectuals who decide on whom to make the war <laughs> basically um So intergenerational was the given. I went to meetings with my parents and sat in the back of the meeting and folded things and put them in envelopes and all of that. When I was a little bit older, started college, I joined, I'm embarrassed to tell you, so I won't, I joined a small communist tendency that turned out to be kind of ridiculous, except for I did get, in a good way, somewhat disciplined by it. Um, And then, you know, continued organizing in a variety of ways. The point, the key word here is Mm organized, but, but as, as I think you were suggesting Robin, and you were definitely, um, arguing Femi, the key word is organizing, but it's not organizing according to some kind of blueprint. It's like thinking, studying, learning, trying something new, thinking, studying, learning, trying something new. So maybe I'll kind of sum at this point by saying, uh, that as a teacher, I've been a professional professor for 25 years of my 72 years. Um, As a teacher, I have found that the kinds of students I have the most fun teaching, I really enjoy, are artists, athletes, and engineers. Artists and athletes know that practice makes different. They all know it. You do something, you do something else. And engineers have no fear about thinking about systems and structures. That's what's given for them. Mm-hmm. So you can talk to an engineer about how racial capitalism works, and they go, yeah, I got it. <laughs> what's the mystery? <laughs> Is <that me? laughs>
3: um, Both. Uh, both would... Um Ruthie and Robin just said really resonate with me. I think the way that it, the way that's coming to mind is, you know, there needs to be access to intergenerational knowledge, but but how that access is there really matters, right? Mm-hmm. So is it in the form of an organization where the elders control, you know, our imagination and our political actions, or is it just um, or are there spaces where the knowledge that previous generations of struggle have had can be transmitted to us, not necessarily in orthodox or doctrinaire ways, but just available so we don't have to reinvent wheels so we can draw on it for creative ideas, all those sorts of things. And, you know, one of the things that I think is, you know, that people on the left have been rightly pointing out about the movement by the right against CRT is that one of the one of the things it's trying to do is prevent organizers from being created right I think that is that has long been one of the goals of the right for dismantling public education it's no coincidence that the um, student protests that created things like black studies and cultural studies happened at a time when the class composition of um, public education in the University of California system was more working class, right? When When higher education was more available to people who could use it to figure out why capitalism was messing up their lives. I think that even to leave the system view for a second and just go to my own experience. It's no accident that I developed the politics that I did being in the UC system, which had lots of black studies and labor studies people. It's no accident that I developed the politics that I did being a part of my graduate workers union. Mm -hmm. You know, it's no accident that I developed the politics that I did. You know, I wasn't personally a student of Robbins, but a lot of my comrades were. And that information that you know, Robin, Robin's generation, Ruthie, Ruthie's generation built in cultural studies—that was originally the point of having cultural studies, Mm -hmm. right? We were going to develop the kind of information we, you know, we needed to analyze race, racial capitalism, and make it available to the generations of people who were at the age of learning. And so, you know, I think if we think about it in this space kind of way, um, rather than necessarily direct relationships from mentor to mentee, um, it's it's clear what kind of things that we need to have intergenerational, um, to have good intergenerational transmission of information. There are things like labor centers and education that doesn't exclude race and labor history and so on and so forth.
0: Well, one major generational difference that I've, I've noticed that on the left is that younger socialists tend to emphasize their opposition to the democratic establishment liberals more, whereas for older people on the left, there tends to, though, of course, not always, be a stronger emphasis on fighting an increasingly authoritarian right, something I've seen from Adolf Fried, Max Albaum, many others. How do you all think about threading that needle? How How should the left's fight? Against a radicalizing right, relate to our struggle with liberals, centrists, and whatnot.
2: Man, <laughs> change everything is, I believe, the title of this conference. <laughs> 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 um, and and it's a it's a good question. Um, here's what I think. I think that uh, the tendency in the United States today is toward fascism. And in some places, and we were discussing earlier today in a fantastic session that Naomi Murakawa um, uh, spoke at, Um, well, it was her work, the whole session. It's very rapid, spatially uneven, so more rapid and and intense perhaps in Florida and Texas, but like 33 states at least are uh, instituting a whole lot of lawmaking and requirements of Policing of the sort that I was talking about last night, whether waged or unwaged, policing expectations on the part of people who work allegedly to provide public goods for public use. Um, That this tendency toward fascism means that both um, those who are looking at the, who are focusing on the authoritarian right, And those who are fighting against the democratic establishment should easily recognize they're doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the democratic establishment, which is an establishment to maintain a certain chunk of um, capitalism uh, intact, is going to constantly yield to the authoritarians in order to maintain the most important thing that they are the political wing of, and that is capitalism, yeah. right? So I think, I think in the United States today, um, and in a good deal of the world, to go back to Gramsci, I'm not yeah. altogether sure there is any hegemonic anything. All there is is domination. Mm-hmm. And that, that this descent from hegemony to domination means, one, everything is up for struggle, that's a good thing, but two, the resolution tendencies seem to be going in the direction constantly of fascism Mm -hmm. that's where we're at and i think that's one of the reasons there are a thousand people at this conference right
1: yeah absolutely and let me just add that one we have to remember well liberalism gave us nothing (laughs) i mean that's why I wonder about the generations. I know there are some people who are basically kind of in bed with the Democratic Party and liberals. But they were classical liberals from before. They, they pretended to be leftists. Um, but they were liberal. I mean, I won't even name them. People get invited to the White House or whatnot. So um, I'm not even going to name them. But when you think about what it means, the, the earlier generations, the anti-war generations, who were they fighting they, they, weren't fight, they were fighting the right, of course they were, but they were mostly fighting the Johnson administration. Much of the radicalism that we always attribute to, like, the 60s, it was against a liberal regime, the liberal regime that gave us a war on poverty that, that didn't even address poverty, right? A liberal regime that, in, in, in place of a war on poverty, we got, you know, as, as Liz Sinton's book talks about, got a war on crime, a war on drugs. We got World war, War War. You know, when we think about the 1990s, so many of those struggles, I write about this in in the new issue, new edition of Freedom Dreams, but also the original edition of Freedom Dreams. So many of those fights were against a liberal regime, against the Clinton era. So it's only the fake nostalgia of thinking about those as the glory days that makes us forget that I don't remember a generation of activists who were not fighting liberals. I don't, I don't even know if that ever happened, <laughs> that they were not, and fighting the right, you know? And what you're saying is so right. If you even look at the history of fascism in Europe, it's the liberal regimes that cede to fascism. You know, There's no right to right. There's no, the fascists did not overthrow the liberal regimes. They emerged out of them, mm-hmm. you know? And right after fascism was formally defeated, what did those regimes do? They continued fascism in the colonies, mm-hmm. right? That's what they do. So there's the, the distinction between these things are not so sharp, and I think we have to be real careful when we're saying, well, if we can just uphold this liberal regime and silence ourselves, that we actually could, could beat back fascism. That's not how you beat back fascism. You have to fight on all those fronts, as, as Ruthie's saying, you know, anyway.
3: That's, that's it. <laughs>
2: I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com.
0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Inside the Second Wave of Feminism, Boston Female Liberation 1968-1972, an account by participants, by Nancy Rosenstock. In this landmark account of a key radical feminist organization, activist members of Boston Female Liberation provide an inside look at the group's history, strategy, and legacy. As Sophie Lewis puts it, "...often the intimately intertwined histories of socialism, anarchism, and gay and women's liberation in America are willfully obscured." Often, the shortcomings and defeats of lesbian-separatist organizing are memorialized to the exclusion of the imaginatively rich, experientially complex, frequently surprising archives of women-centered struggle we need and deserve to hear about. These are some of the reasons why Nancy Rosenstock's account of the militant collective thought and action of trans-inclusive Boston females 50 years ago is an important resource for anyone invested in today's movements for gender liberation and reproductive justice. Inside the Second Wave of Feminism by Nancy Rosenstock Out now from Haymarket Books and available on haymarketbooks.org where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and 25 pounds, respectively. The American left is often criticized for not being internationalist enough, and and that's fair. I mean, just look at the lack of any sort of sustained or broad response to Biden recently stealing half of Afghanistan's central bank reserves for 9-11 families. But what should that internationalism look like and and where and where did it go? So did it disappear along with the Cold War and the era of national liberation movements? Cause I I sometimes have the sense that the answer what the material of practice, what the material practice of solidarity should look like was once a bit more obvious, thinking back to the eighties and the Central American solidarity movement, which was both supporting Central American revolutions, defend, opposing Reagan's dirty wars, and also defending refugees when they arrived here in the US, do, do any positive examples come to mind today looking at Palestine, climate, the war on terror, immigrant rights, and how should we be not just thinking but doing internationalism?
3: I like, I like reparations. Um, I, you know, I think, aspects of internationalism have to be long term because they just depend on having a uh, they they depend on having enough power to actually ch- challenge the foreign policy establishment which as parts of the state go you know it's it's the it's the part of the state that was robust against the Vietnam era anti-war movement which is among the largest social movements we've ever seen in this country's history, just to talk about an international movement in the United States. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, people who aren't of the opinion that they can organize to defend their own children are going to be very difficult to organize to defend anyone else's. Like, I, I just think that is the starting point for a realistic political analysis of uh, internationalism. Um, but I don't think that we, I don't think that it's just political education until we have you know triple our union density. Right? There are things that um, can be done and are being done. UTLA, for example, um, when it was negotiating, negotiated for um, an immigration legal defense fund. You know, um, that's part of the bargaining for the common good movement, which is linking. Contract demands to larger justice-oriented demands, and I think that kind of organizing in general is the sort of thing that is more compatible with internationalism than than um, kind of standard status quo politics. So I do I do think even between now and a much more organized U.S. working class, there are things to do internationally. But I do think the basic problem is you know a base building one mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah i i think that's true i also think that there is a fair amount of you know however modestly scaled internationalism from below that is happening all the time mm-hmm. you know sanctuary city uh, organizing organizing to protect people who are undocumented organizing to um, help people cross borders, Uh, a lot of this work is going on. I also think that, to go back to our um, comrades who are organizing unions, that so many unions, however local their local fight is, are entailed by firms or capitalist activities that necessarily, by definition... Have an int- a global reach, which means that there is the possibility for internationalism built into the union struggle. So whether that's Amazon workers who are moving things that have you know in those cardboard boxes with the smile on it, um, you know pieces of Congo and you know the blood of a Bangladeshi worker and and a piece of Chile, you know in every box. Um, Other workers, uh, I talked a little bit last night about the nurses, the National Nurses United has uh, organized with some nurses unions in a number of countries to form a global Nurses United uh, front. And they're organizing in big places like Brazil and India and so forth. So this is another aspect of internationalism that is not quite from below, but pretty close to from, from below. And I think there, there are many more examples of what we can see. Now, does something called the left recognize this? I don't know, because to go back to what Robin was saying, I'm not altogether sure, Dan, sometimes what or who the left is.
0: <laughs> that, right. That is a, that is a question <laughs> I'm going to ask
1: later. <laughs> 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 no, we're going to ask you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, just, I just want to, to affirm. <laughs> what both Femi and Ruthie said, but in particular, I, I guess for me, I, I see a lot of internationalism, but it takes on different forms, takes on exactly the forms you just laid out. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that almost all those movements that just erupted in spring 2020 that existed before that, that made spring 2020 happen, whether you're talking about the Dream Defenders or Recharge Genocide or B- Black Lives Matter or you know, they were insistently internationalist. Mm-hmm. But we we don't think you know that's where the left is. Those folks, the, the it, um, I don't know more. You know the struggles around the mm-hmm. Dakota Access Pipeline. These are internationalist indigenous struggles. They're so internationalist, extremely internationalist. They're there. I mean, who's going to Palestine? You got so many people going to Palestine. I keep running into people in Palestine who are like in the streets of Chicago, but or in, in in Miami or in Philadelphia, right? So it's there. I don't know who the I don't like, I don't know who the left is. And I do know that what we do suffer from is a long-standing history of white nationalism, which is not a minority position. It's something that's common to the United States. And so the fact that there is not a robust, vibrant, angry, anti-war movement pushing back against the United States saber-rattling in China, uh, and and for that matter, Russia. The fact that it's not there, and the fact that there's a US foreign policy that still believes that the American empire is, they're not even hiding it. It's like not only righteous, but it's normative. The, the fact that this exists is, to me, the problem. I, I, but then again, you know, our movements have never been majority movements. I know we always talk about scale, 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 and I've, I think scale is important. But even if you think of the civil rights movement, it was never a mass, mass movement. You know, you have mass moments. Mm-hmm. But what SNCC was doing on the ground was small numbers. So I think that the internationalism, one could argue, that internationalism among those movements that are movement movements is more robust now mm-hmm. than in a long time. I would, I would say that. Mm-hmm.
0: Ruthie, do you, do you think that left internationalism, American left internationalism today, is as robust as it was during the heyday of, of third worldism and national liberation struggles?
2: That's a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it is, it is well I'm kind of asking yeah but, uh,
0: maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll redirect it to Robin, so I want to push well, back because I want to I, yeah it's kind of i'm a trick not I, I'm, well, I'm not con I agree that it, it, it we see it in in places where it might not be immediately obvious and that it's mm-hmm. maybe more robust than it might appear at first blush, mm-hmm. but i I'm not convinced mm-hmm. that it's as robust as it was mm-hmm. then.
2: Well here maybe maybe here the best thing I can do. Is ask you, Dan, to say what you think you mean by mm-hmm. internationalism. Maybe that's yeah. what we're stumbling over.
0: I think there was a concrete practice specifically in the Central America Solidarity mm-hmm. movement, the elders of which are sort of the were my mentors coming up in the late nineties and early aughts. That was perhaps possible because of geographic proximity between Central America and the United States, where you had a lot of movement back and forth across borders and you had this amazing dynamic connecting the political struggle against us intervention in Central America, the active support for the revolutionary movements Mm -hmm. in Central America to this more politically broader base that brought in, that was kind of anchored on the left, but brought in a lot of liberals and more kind of mainstream nonprofits too of defending refugee rights once they crossed the border and that created a sort of visibility uh, and of the transnationality of the struggle that I think was notable. Well, and same know, with we, anti-apartheid. We, we, which we
1: were... I came up with that. Yes. We were in California at the same time. We yeah. were in California in the 80s. Just th- that, that was one of the hubs of the, the um, sanctuary movement. And mm-hmm. anyone on the left, they were all working. We were listening to Blaise on the rate, on the radio. On KPFK, and yeah. we were all organized around this whole question. So that's not even, that's definitely the fact. Yeah. Um, and in fact, you can go back, because I thought you meant the 70s. Yeah. The, the, the days of the African Liberation Support right. Committee, the days right. of where the struggle around Angola, Guinea-Bissau, and. Sure. I mean, in other words, there's a long tradition and history of internationalism that, that ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, but there's a difference. I'm not, but if, we're, if, if, if the question is, was there a this unified thing called the American left that was moving in that direction more so than today, the, the, way, the, what I, the reason I would sort of question it is not that there's more. I certainly think it's more complicated. Yeah. But there's a lot going on in the 70s and 80s. What I would say is different, though, is that some of those movements, we're not necessarily identified with what someone who's a historian of the left would identify as a left. Exactly, <laughs> and I would I would say they're the left, but but they're not. They don't get. I, I wrote Freedom Dreams to make the point that there's a whole left that you don't think is a left, and here it is. You know, so I, I I think I think that's a real important part of the story, because that's the anti-apartheid movement, the struggles to 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 um to basically defund all the to, to boycott the banks and industries that are putting money in Angola and Southern Africa and that sort of thing. Those are big, robust movements, often led by people who the left disputed or considered not really part of their circle.
3: Can, can I push back, though? So I want to ask the question based on on how you think about the left, right? Because I'm also thinking about that same kind of historical trajectory, right? You had... People supporting African liberation fighters throughout the U.S., you know, putting them on, mm-hmm. you know, tours and, you know, making all these networks and uh, supporting anti-apartheid struggles. Not just intervening in terms of developing politically in an internationalist direction, but actually trying to destroy apartheid. Right. 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 Actually trying to stop the Vietnam War. Actually trying to stop iraq afghanistan invasions um and that is a level of internationalist organizing so do you think we're still at that level now in you know in the broader version of the left or the different version of the left
0: if i could add a quick addendum i would think the examples of the anti iraq and anti-afghanistan war movements might point more towards the shift towards the the the, the deep decline of internationalism because there was a huge explosion of anti-war protests in the mid and early aughts, but it was not a sustained. It did not end up to a sustained mass attempt to stop the war in the sense that there was a sustained mass attempt to destroy apartheid or stop Reagan's dirty wars in Central America. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I want. Lucy has a better answer than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just all I'll say is that it just it really does depend, because there are some moments like Grenada. Grenada is very important because whatever the limits and and pitfalls of neutral movement, a lot of people who died in Grenada who had to flee were from here and they moved there to be part of that revolution. And I'm not trying to, to say that there's like a hierarchy of internationalism. I'm saying that what you're describing, which I think is really important, that is what it means to invest in a movement to try to end this colonial order. And that's like a really good example of of people participating in revolution. And I don't, I, I just think it depends on time, place, condition. Right now, a lot of people are taking a stand with respect to Palestine in a way. And Ruthie was one of the among that early generation that went there and was you know in solidarity, um, and 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 suffering as a result of that. You know, um, and there are more people now. I think than say 20 years ago in terms of the U.S. support for Palestine. So it just depends, like, it goes up, back and forth, up and down and I think each, each, each thing has to be looked at in terms of time-space condition as opposed to just seeing, a because the world is uneven, if that makes sense, I don't yeah. know.
2: It's really uneven. Yeah, this is what we geographers talk about all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Unevenness all day. Uneven, uneven development. Well, here, here's here's the one thing I think I can add to our conversation right now. Robin, you did write a book, Freedom Dreams, to teach or remind people there is um, in your book and therefore in a good deal of the world, not covered by your book or Femi's mm-hmm. book or my book, all of this activity that is left activity that doesn't count in many people's estimation when they think about the left. Here are two things that I thought about while we were talking. The first is that a lot of the organizational energy and commitment that went into um, people uh, joining forces to, uh, in, in the U.S. to end apartheid in Southern Africa, support the frontline states, all that stuff. Um, uh, so much of the energy that went into Cispas and, and a lot of the Central American struggles, uh, of course the energy that went into um, uh, trying to end the wars in Southeast Asia, Mm -hmm. A lot of that energy, you know, arose, it consolidated, it consolidated at the same time as many of the U.S.-based radical domestic struggles, whether SNCC, Black Panther Party, and so forth. As we know, the Panther Party was slammed into the ground, slammed into the ground, murdered into oblivion, Mm -hmm. and then people who weren't murdered were sent to jail and are still there, by and large. But the organizational energy and capacity didn't all go away. And what happened to a lot of it is that it went as it were underground. And I don't mean necessarily clandestinely Mm -hmm. underground, but it just faded from sight, faded from vision, but people kept doing things. Mm -hmm. The contemporary abolition movement that a bunch of us kicked off in the late 90s is a direct product of that work Mm -hmm. by those people who kept organizing, who kept organizing. And so when we got to that turning point that Robin described earlier about how once upon a time the um, uh, anti-prison movement was only concerned with making the well-being of prisoners more secure Mm -hmm. while in prison, right? That turned into abolition when we realize the only way to guarantee the well-being of prisoners is to get them out of prison mm-hmm. right. now for some people who style themselves you know big thinkers on the left today that is a fool's errand because we are... Um, Putting our energy and enthusiasm and demands at the service of people who are somehow, in the estimation of these people who are big shots, uh, to in the service of people who are not worthy of this um, activity because they are marginal to the actual people who are actually the protagonists of history in the struggle against capitalism. We say. From our long experience fighting in the U.S. and fighting internationally, that's bullshit. And that the human sacrifice characterized by mass incarceration is part of the general global problem of what capitalism does, how it works, and how it destroys people, places, and things. And this is why I agreed to come to this conference at all this year was so that I could talk with people whose um, who's learning and thinking has been so meaningful to me, new friend, ancient friend. <laughs> oh, for those who are listening to the podcast, new friend is Femi, ancient friend is Robin. <laughs> um, so that we could you know, continue these discussions without tripping over whether or not the central contradictions include, as they must, the contradictions of mass incarceration, of precarious labor, of houselessness, of gender violence, of all of the things we've been talking about, right. that this is all one thing. right? This is why this conference is called Change Everything. Right. But we change it by changing the already existing organizations we work through, as well as forming new Organizations, because if consciousness is the means through which we imagine ourselves in the into the future, organizations are the form. Like we have to have form, or we can't get there. Right.
0: <clears throat> Ruthie, what what does liberalism, or as you were just discussing, also certain forms of Marxism obscure about the relationship between the economic versus the political and social features of capitalism, which is maybe a fancy way of saying, what does it obscure about the relationship between race and class or between exploitation, expropriation, Mm -hmm. and repression? Why is it that this is so hard for many people, whether liberal or on the left, Mm -hmm. to get right?
2: Man, I wish I knew, because it seems so easy to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm actually serious. I don't, I re- I, I, I'm, I'm not being falsely modest when I say I don't understand why it's so hard to understand that, well, let me quote an old rallying cry, an injury to one is an injury to all. It's not an injury to a few is an injury to the others who count. It's one is all. So liberalism is what it is because the, um, the kinds of activities that in some are the workings of the economy are, for liberalism, the foundation of all that is good in the world. Right? So of course, liberalism cannot see that the freedom that capitalism enables the particular kind of freedom that capitalism enables is not in and of itself a universalizing force. They believe it is. Right. They, like, totally know it is. They've written books about it. It's like an entire philosophy, because they're not? Like, when they're not talking about the donuts, they're talking about this.
0: <laughs> the donuts are what lure you in, and then, and then they get you with that other shit.
2: Right, so I'm not all that surprised about liberalism, capital L, liberalism, because it's, you know, it's a really coherent religion. Mm -hmm. It's an incredibly coherent religion. And its coherence depends on uh, ignoring and calling outliers everything that doesn't work according to its theologies. That that these are just the people outside. Oh, here. I'm going to go really far back in time and, and space to make a point. Herman Bannett, you know who he is? Yes. Fantastic historian, fantastic historian. He writes about medieval and early modern African history. He's a genius and colonial history. He wrote a book a few that he published a few years ago called um, African Kings and Black Slaves. His argument in the book, which is Really profound is that uh, as against the view that many of us who came up through black studies and ethnic studies take of the the origin and development of the African slave trade, that a bunch of Europeans got in some boats, you know, chugged down to west and west Central Africa, grabbed some people off the shore, chugged across the Atlantic, and started plantations. He goes, well, you know maybe there's something else going on that gives us some insights into the origin and development of European political theory and theories of sovereignty. So let's look again at what was happening when these cats got in the boats and chugged down to West and West Central Africa and started trying to figure out who the sovereigns were who could authorize them first to take gold and then to take humans. And that in that interaction... We get, at once, the rise and development of what became liberal political theory and the production of those who are outside the order, those who, as Herman puts it, were conscripted into slavery. Right? So sovereignty, no sovereignty. Change over time. So liberalism doesn't confuse me and shouldn't confuse anybody. (laughs) Lefties, though, I don't get it. Like, why is a particularly narrowly defined notion of the point of production so blinding that they can't see and can't read what people have written and written and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten in a variety of traditions around the world to show that that point of production is meaningless without the entire constellation of social relations that make any activity of that point of production possible.
0: Robin, this has me thinking a lot about hammer and hoe.
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> you, can't, you can't ask me a question now. I mean, <laughs> you, have, you, have to, you have to sit with that for a second. You really have to sit with that. Because exactly, that's brilliant. you know. And, and it's interesting that I feel like you've said this before. You've been saying this for 20 plus, 30 years. And you would think, by now, we would have, like all of us, a kind of clear understanding of liberalism and a clear understanding of the limits of the way Marxism is mobilized. Um, and, you know, the, and the interesting thing is the, the, the fact that there are these debates that took place both throughout the 20th century about the point of production versus, you know, someplace else. That is uh, someplace else, often community or neighborhood. And you've answered all the questions that I think everyone needs to know so you can go and do your work.
0: Well, let me ask you a more specific follow-up question. How does, has the debate or set of confusions that pass for a debate sometimes about kind of race and class and all of that in the last decade or two compared to what you saw in, say, the 1930s?
1: Right. Well, um, the short version is that you could, is the hammer and hose available? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But but to answer your question, Dan, which is a a good one, you know, I, I, I sort of, I feel like, you know, I feel like the way... Lucy felt about this when I started writing about the Communist Party. Um, and it, in fact, it was originally South Africa. And I, the reason I ended up not writing about South Africa is because I couldn't get into the country in 1986. <laughs> and for, you know, for good reason. I don't know if you know what was happening there. But in many ways, I, I never ever saw, and my mentors never ever saw, a conflict. In other words, there wasn't an opposition between race and class they were mutually constitutive. Even if the the folks who worked in San Pedro didn't use that term, they understood it because they lived it. Um, And so looking at the communist Party in Alabama, it's very clear that um, the black working class was a working class and they were black. And so they dealt with things, um, forms of oppression and marginalization, but also forms of community that made it possible for them to build a movement that was always inclusive, the problem and just very simply, um, if you go back to, to, if you go back and read Black Marxism and if you read uh, it 's the section in part one where he talks about social, where, where he talks about sort of socialist, socialist theory and nationalism and the limits of Marx and engel 's notion of, of socialist theory because of nationalism, one of the points he actually makes is a, in the conclusion of that section he says, he doesn't use the term racial reductionism, but he says, you know, the problem with our understanding through Marx is that race, racialism shaped the way in which Marxists of the 19th century and early 20th century understood class. So he's saying the original racial reductionism is in, in Marx. Not Marx per se, but in Marx in the way that the fact that, that Marx and Engels cannot escape the fact that they lived in a society that was already racial. And he's saying that crimes began before there were black people on the scene. The crimes began within Europe itself. That is, if you create hierarchies of difference that are based on these imagined sort of notion of what the hair invoked is, you know, then that's what you get. You get a sense of where well, you can't separate race and class, but especially where you can't see class operations because of race. And we flipped it. We, we keep saying that all those movements that are coming out that are not claiming to be class movements, they're not claiming to be universal, are the ones that are, are engaged in race reductionism. When it's like it's, it's the original sin was back then, you know, understanding the way in which Europe shaped socialist theory. And then we could actually move past it mm-hmm. as long as we're able to engage it. Mm-hmm
3: yeah I don't find I don't find the liberal the liberal's position on race and class hard to understand for the reasons Ruthie explained Um, I do find the kind of refusal by some Marxists to let those play nice together I do find that hard to understand, mostly because I I feel like I learned a lot of how I think about race and capitalism and the global flow of capitalism from Marx. And I'm I'm breaking one of my normal rules, which is to talk about interpretations of 19th century German political thought. (laughs) (laughs) But here we are. Uh, But, you know, I mean... In, in that first few decades or so, there were very explicit debates between Marx's contemporaries and you know even the you know first couple of generations of the Russian Marxists, plajanov and Lenin and Trotsky and all them about the difference that very contingent things made, right you know what's Kaiser Wilhelm going to do right that's not built into the laws of motion of capital <laughs> but it, but whether or not we survive this revolutionary struggle depends on the answer to this very contingent question about what's going on over there and one of the things that was going on over there and that was very explicitly acknowledged again by all these old guard marxists was the berlin conference of 1884 and the division of the african continent into basically zones of economic exploitation by European colonial powers, and people had debates about exactly what to think about that and what to do about that, but nobody thought that was irrelevant. And zoom forward a few, you know, a few decades, a few generations, and people are like, well, maybe it's just Adam's void and class struggle and nothing else, you know, there's no, all you do is count where profit's going, and you don't need to think about other social categories or something like that. Earlier, when I started talking, I said the refusal of some people to talk about race and class, and I think that's been, I think that has been the position I've come to. It really just is a refusal. There's no position there. Um, You know, it's just a refusal. (laughs) Um, I just—I'm reminded. I have—I have, I have to—I have to call him out. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, a couple of years ago, Michael Walter wrote uh, a piece on racial capitalism, and it starts by being like, "I don't know what this phrase means, but <laughs> but here's how I feel about <laughs> it." <laughs> Which is never how you want to start a debate, but, you know. Can
0: I Google that for you, (laughs) Professor Walzer? Yeah,
3: and, you know, he's a contemporary of Cedric Robinson's who wrote Black Marxism and is one of the um, people that uses the phrase racial capitalism. He's a contemporary of the African anti-colonial theorists who came up with this in South Africa and Zimbabwe and... uh, Ibadan in Nigeria, you know, the people who were doing this theory in the 60s and 70s. And I was just like, oh, they just didn't read it. Oh, that's fine. Right. <laughs> Your like,
1: piece is brilliant on this. By, by yeah, the it, is. it is. Thank you.
3: But, you know, and I, I just, the, the last thing I'll say in closing is just, you know, if people don't want to talk about it, they don't have to talk about it. You know, it's a I was going to say it's a free country. A free... <laughs> <laughs> Wrong crowd. Uh, <laughs> But but, you know, nobody's saying, you know, nobody's holding a gun to your head and be like, you must read Cedric Robinson. But I I think we can, you know, those of us who are interested in thinking about how these things are connected can can just go about doing that. We don't have to pretend like there's some serious intellectual position somewhere that's explaining why we shouldn't. Could I add something
2: here? I'm with you. If somebody doesn't want to talk about, engage with these ideas, engage with people who are, are working on the ground, that's fine. But if that's what their position is, then they really need to shut the fuck up. <laughs> I'm, I'm remarkably irritated. <laughs> by so many wags who publish in journals like Jacobin, which might publish a transcript of this conversation, (laughs) and elsewhere who make shit up about abolition and then tear it down. Mm -hmm. They invent antecedents, they attribute arguments to people who never made any kind of argument of that sort, They can't tell black women apart. (laughs) Tired of it, I'm tired of it. And they can just shut up, do whatever else they're gonna do. Um, But I wanna say something about Marx also. I used to teach Marx every year. I like teaching Capital Volume One. It's a lot of fun to teach. And what we do is read Capital Volume One one semester and then read Black Marxism. I was like back to back. It was great, a lot of fun. You would never know the way some of these people carry on, these people being the people who can't tell black women apart, et cetera, et cetera, that most of the Marxists on the planet are not white, they're not men, and they're not in the global north. And when you read, actually read, that book, Capital Volume One, and then the subsequent books and then all the other stuff, because that cat was, like, busy. <laughs> that cat was busy. Robin once called him the nappy-headed philosopher. <laughs> <But> <laughs> he was Ma- Marx, not Cedric. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cedric's hair was kind of nappy, too, fine. though. <laughs> but anyway, but if you read Capital Volume One and read it as though you're reading- a 19th century English novel, mm-hmm. you will have a better read than if you sit down reading it for the blueprint of what to do. Right. Right. It tells you a story with all of these dynamics and characters, and you can not only see what's happening in the dialectical analysis of the commodity form and the industrial mode of production, but also you can see in the pages The rise of certain kinds of um, uh, institutional and other forms that actually Charlie didn't discuss in the book, but he's pointing and saying, you should pay attention to this too. So when he says in passing, and therefore the working men, blah, 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 organized, and in such and such a year, a law was passed against child labor or against women working in certain hours in factories, that tells you something quite important about the struggle and the structure over the, the capitalist mode of production, the possible power of workers, how the state, the capitalist state, came into being, and how it changes. It's all there. Mm-hmm. It just isn't all laid out paragraph by paragraph. And uh, to come forward a few decades from uh, the scramble for Africa to the common turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh the common turn. Again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote Robin, say, who was th- said in, in a talk he gave, oh, one of the study groups, mm. maybe Labor, Labor Community Strategy Center study summer session mm. in Utah. Mm. We all do study groups, by the way. And if you all are in a study group, get in a study group. You should be in study groups always. But anyway, um, Robin talked about the common turn, everybody getting together. And of course, you know, Lennon and them were kind of flush with victory. And I still think it's the greatest thing. And uh, but the toilers of the East came, and I think it was M.N. Roy. You know, Roy got up and I quote Robin, look, Lenin, says M.N. Roy. <laughs> There's this and this and this. So, you know, the the fact of the matter is, whatever people in the 21st century think the origin and development of capital of of communism, anti-capitalism and communism is is different, and if they can't think about, and talk about, and write about, race in class, again, I'm going to say they need to (laughs) (laughs) S-T-F-U. They're missing it. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs)
0: Robin, we we were emailing a, a few days ago, and you wrote that quote, the days of party cadre seem over, and that... At least for now definitely seems to be true but but mike davis who's we've all been thinking about a lot recently he's not alone in calling for a new organization of organizers what what were the shortcomings of the era of cadre organization and and what by contrast are we missing in their absence
1: um i think
2: you should take that one and you we only have two minutes yeah you think I should take it? Yeah, yeah.
1: We
0: might go over. I, I guess, we might go over two or three minutes. I
2: think. I think we're actually in a new era of cadre organization, um, and the cadres, what I called last night, the Soviets, are not um, necessarily in communist or socialist parties, but they are really serious organizers mm-hmm. who are who are not only fighting to make something where they're at, but developing relations across. Um, uh, various struggles in order to be in solidarity, not alliance, solidarity with others. The example I use over and over again is the MST. It's not the only one, but it's a really strong one. And I think that the best way to think about what the MST does is, as a social movement, doing land occupations, uh, developing agriculture, doing building occupations in Sao Paulo and Rio so that long-distance migrants don't get caught up in the U.S. criminalization um, outsourcing regime, uh, working with uh, people in southern Africa to figure out how, quote-unquote, shack-dwellers can make the land around where they're living um, flourish agriculturally, and people in, I guess that's our deadline, huh? Um People in Indonesia and elsewhere who are trying to shift from monocropping to uh, sustainable agriculture is an example of cadre work. In the United States, people who are working in a number of different formations fighting for abolition, for workers' rights and so forth, are something pretty close to cadre. And while it might be that I'm being a little slippery and using the word to describe people who would not then self-describe thus... Um, we should take seriously the possible sturdiness of what they're doing mm-hmm. and the focus okay. and creative aggression that that motivates them and again think about how to build those organizations through the the energy that we have gathered in these rooms and elsewhere so I think cadre might be back for wow. Thank you.
1: But I would add that it's, it's, it's cadre without democratic centralism, you know, which I think is actually, meaning for those of you who may not know, heard that term before, democratic centralism is like you have the line, once the line is, 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 is determined, you follow that line. And I feel like what, you, what you've described is something um, that's definitely like cadre organization, but more democratic In the sense that it looks more like an organization of organizers, Mm -hmm. you know, MST, you know, Mm -hmm. building power and people having the capacity to build power and do the work they need to do without necessarily having to be um, told you're not following the line, so there you can be expelled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, because people get expelled in a cadre organization in a way that I think this other generation it's a little bit different.
2: Yeah, I think you're right.
3: Um, I don't have too much to add, um, but maybe just a plus one to, you know, can we have ways of having ongoing principal disagreement as opposed to the kind of party discipline that's um, associated with democratic centralism? I think that's an open question. Um, We don't have the organization to even ask it at this point, but if we were going to build one, I think that would be question number one. So... Mm -hmm. Maybe it's it's a good point to leave on.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Well, Femi Taiwo, Robin Kelly, and
0: Ruth Wilson-Gilmore, thank you all very, very much. Femi Taiwo is professor of philosophy at Georgetown University and the author of Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else and Reconsidering Reparations. Robin D.G. Kelly is a professor of history at UCLA and the author of Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great Depression, and Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, among many other books and articles. Ruth Wilson Gilmore organizes with people around the planet, teaches at City University of New York Graduate Center, and is the author of, among other things, Abolition Geography, Golden Gulag, and forthcoming change everything. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the political state represents the table of contents of man's practical conflicts. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Tumuz Frankel. Our senior advisors are Theorio, francos and Ben Baby. Check out our vast archives at The Dig Radio. they vast indeed. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or another such platform, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you just telling other people that you know to listen to the podcast please make propaganda for us and please do find us at patreon.com/thedig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong even a few bucks is huge